Well, we are in uh, the book of Job. Job is literature or wisdom literature. And in this book, uh, we see that a man, we see a man who wrestles with the reality of pain, of suffering, and evil in this world. In Job 1 and 2, we see Job lost everything. That's what we saw for the last couple of weeks. He lost all his, his employees, all the servants that he had, his livestock, his possessions. He buried his, t- his 10 children. And then he loses his health. We're told that he has boils all over his body from head to toe. He's immense pain. And so how does Job respond to what we looked at last week? We see that he worships God. Chapter 1, verse 20 said, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then again in chapter 2, verse 10, he tells his wife, Shall we not receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Um, and so it's, it's really, really good that the Bible, or that the book of Job doesn't end after Job chapter 2, verse 10. Isn't it? Like it's really good that it doesn't end right there, because we might be tempted to think that as Christians... We just press through, we kind of become stoic, and um, we're not really affected by suffering and pain. Now, that's not the case, what happens, but we can, we can maybe come to that application if Job ends right there. That would lead us to just putting on plastic smiles all the time and living by the motto, fake it till you make it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said that? Maybe you're doing it right now. Um, but that's not what happens. That's not what happens in chapters or in the book of Job. In fact, we now have 39 chapters of speeches that are going to go between God, Job, his friends, and there's just wrestling forth with pain, with suffering, with evil, and what it is that God is doing in Job's life. And so in chapter 3, we just have a totally uncensored cry of a believer. There's no filter on his words. They're just raw emotions. Now, some of you, you might... You might recoil at the words of Job. You're going to think, man, can a Christian really say those things? Others of you are going to feel comforted because Job is going to say the very things you have thought in the dark nights of the soul that you have experienced. Now, uh, one, one pastor, when he preached chapter 3, they did no music that day. And, and he so wanted people to sit in the agony of, of where Job was. Um, I didn't think we needed to go that way. Uh, we we, we were, spent a lot of time just in the depth of where Job was last week. And while Job 3 is a very dark, it's, it's the, one of the darkest, if not the darkest chapter in the entire Bible, but there is hope for us to know. And we live on this side of the cross. So as we look at God's word, and as we look at the life of Job, we do so through the lens of Christ. And so there is always hope for us to have. And so that is what I pray that we, we see today and that God would use this chapter uh, to strengthen your faith and that we would know that great faith is not incompatible with deep darkness. Like I hope we see that today. Like we can have great faith that's not incompatible with deep darkness. And so the main point this morning is when our soul is engulfed by thick darkness, we must never forget that God is with us. Must never, ever forget that God is with us. And so that's what I hope you see as we walk through uh, this chapter. And what we're going to do is we're going to start where we did, where we ended last week. So chapter 2, verse 11. And then we're going to read all the way through chapter 3. It's quite a bit, but I will ask you to go ahead and stand as we as we read through our text, if it is a little long, feel free to sit if you need to. Um, Job chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Chapter 3. After this... Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish 
on which I was born in the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors on my mother's womb nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and just expire. Why did the knees receive me? Why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not as a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? who longs for death, but it comes not, and digs for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoices exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Let's pray. Father, Father, we saw earlier in the psalm that when we cry out, you hear. God, we know that in the darkest nights of the soul, that you hear us. You are with us. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we dig into this chapter, and we see what is happening and, and what you are, are communicating to us through the life of Job. I pray our souls would be comforted. I pray our faith would be strengthened. Lord, I pray if anyone here right now just feels like this cry is their cry. Now, God, you would just especially, just by your spirit, pour out grace upon them. May they know that you are good. May they know that you are sovereign. May they know you are present with them, and their pain in no way indicates your absence. And so, Father, strengthen us today. Bless the preaching of your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So let's just, let's just make sure we understand how we begin. The scene opens, three friends of Job, they come to comfort him. They've heard about all the evil. And they want to help. And when they saw Job, they're mourned. They're, they're, they're mourned and they begin weeping. And they tear their robes and they place ashes on their head. And they sit in total silence, seven days, seven nights. No words are spoken. Absolute silence. Job's not speaking and they're certainly not going to speak. The situation is much, much, much graver than they imagined Nothing prepared them for this scenario. Job's in total misery. And then all of a sudden, chapter 3 comes, and the silence is broken. So Job speaks. And we then say, well, what will he say? I mean, just think about that. Seven days, seven What would you say? Where would you go? Before we look at exactly what Job says, I want us to notice how he says it. So if you look at verse 24... He says, for my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Job's words, are, they're, they're not refined, they're not eloquent. Remember, 
uncensored, just cry of the soul. This is everything in the raw. And so the word sighing, it refers to the growl or the roar of a lion. And the word groaning just describes someone who's weeping and he's bawling. And so this chapter is about the roar of Job's soul, of his soul as he's just weeping forth right now. So you just imagine tears are, are streaming down his eyes. The silence breaks with his voice. He just cries out. We're not even told it's directed towards God. It just says, after this, Job just opens his mouth. And so we're going to look at what he says. And, and the chapter is really broken up in three sections. And so we'll just walk through them one by one. And then there's three truths that we need to see. So number one, Job wishes he had, he had not been born. We see that in verses 1 through 10. Now, as I consider this, this is like the exact opposite of what's been happening here in our church. We've had a lot of babies been born lately, and everyone knows that when you hear that someone is pregnant or, or the day of the birth, we're just in total excitement, right? Like that is a joy, that is a thrill over the, few, over the last few months, we've had baby showers, baby dedications, babies have been born even this last week. Yeah, it was this week. I'm trying to remember with Greg and Emma. It was this week. We had a new, a new baby that was born. We've, uh, we've blown up balloons. We've eaten cake. We've given presents. I mean, the birth of a child is amazing. It's exciting, and it moves us all to great celebration, but not Job, not his birth. Verse 3, Job curses the day of his birth. In fact, look at verse 4. He says, I just wish darkness would absolutely consume it. In fact, this is like the exact opposite of Genesis 1-3, where God says, let there be light. Job says, let there be darkness on the day of my birth. There should be no hope in it. The stars should go black. Don't even let the sun rise on it. Verse 6, he says, I wish that this day would just be removed from the calendar. He says, let it not come into the number of the months. Just scratch it out. It's just removed. We'll never recognize that day again. So that's the first section. The second section in verses 11 through 19, Job wishes he had died at birth. And we see that in verse 11. He says, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and just expire. Why did the knees receive me? Why, did, why the breasts? Why should I nurse? For then I would have been laying down and been quiet. I would have slept and then I would have been at rest. Or look at verse 16. Just imagine. Imagine the agony of the soul as he says this. Why was I not as a hidden stillborn child? As infants who just never see the light. That, that, that's what he wished happened. Now, some of you know, you know the pain of a miscarriage. You know the pain of stillbirth. Job's not being sarcastic. He's not being flippant with his words. If anything, what we're seeing is, is just the rawness of his soul, just the pain that he's experiencing. Remember, he lost 10 children. As he looks out from the ashes he's sitting on, he sees 10 graves, seven sons, three daughters. He's outlived all of his children. It's like the fear of every parent to outlive their children, and to bury them. And so as we're reading this, we have to realize we're, we're giving a window into the soul of Job right now. And we just see agony, we see pain. And if you know the pain of a miscarriage or pain of stillbirth, then, and you're tasting that pain, you know something of what he's going through right here. Last section, verses 20 through 26, Job wishes he would just die now. I wish I wasn't born, and if I was born, I wish I just died. And since none of that happened, if only God would let me die right now. Verse 21, he says he longs for death. Verse 23, there's a hedge that once protected him. If you remember back in chapter 1, Satan's like, well, I would affect Job, but you placed a hedge of protection around him, like a force field. I can't get through. And now the word hedge is used again, so we need to remember that because it's very very close in proximity to the other word, or to the first time it was used. And now, he says in verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? Like, why am I staying alive? I don't want to stay alive. Why has God hedged me in? Why, why is God protecting me from death? All I want to do is just die 
right now. And verse 26 is a summary of just how he feels. And I think, I think it's a good picture. He says, my soul is not at ease. It's not quiet. It's not at rest. Just absolute trouble surrounds him. You can see why this is like the darkest chapter in the book, right? Entire Bible. Just darkness envelops everything about Job. Have you ever been hit like really hard in the stomach? I think every guy especially knows that. I don't know, girls sometimes do, but guys especially do because we, we hit each other. Just what we do. <laughs> hey, buddy. And when we do that and we laugh at it, um, but you know, especially when it's unexpected and you just get hit hard, maybe it's in sports, maybe it's because you're just playing around, that you lose all air, you, you just kind of, you, you begin gasping for breath, and you're just wrenching in pain at that moment. Now just think, that's constantly how Job feels. Constantly gasping for air, wrenching in pain, but he's never finding relief. Or as Christopher Ash in his commentary, he said, Job is like a man on life support, on a life support machine who longs for it to be switched off. So you just turn it off. This isn't living anymore. Just, just turn it off. So I ask you, have you experienced a dark night of the soul? Do you, do you know at least something of what this is like? There might be some of you who haven't really experienced this type of darkness. But I know, I know there's some of you that have. I've, I've seen a suffering has come and struck. And maybe this is how you feel today. Do you feel as though your soul is just surrounded by darkness? Notice, notice even in the first um, section, in verses 1 through 11, just how, how he describes his the state that he's in. He's like, I wish, I wish that um, um, on that night it would just be darkness in verse, verse 3 and 4. He says in verse 5, let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let blackness of the day terrify it. Let that day, let thick darkness seize it. He's using all this imagery of darkness, thick, gloomy, just blackness is what surrounds him right now. Do you know what that's like? Have you tasted that? Have you experienced it? I want you to notice him. Notice pain is completely all-consuming. When you're in this state of mind, it's all that you see. That's, notice Job doesn't talk about anything else other than just his pain. And in fact, he just wants to die. He wish he had died. He wish he would die. Job sees everything through the lens of loss and restlessness right now. And what we realize is pain is real. We, we do feel pain. We do experience real physical pain, real emotional pain. We do hurt. And, and what's incredible is God's, God's not afraid of us coming and venting to him. You know that? Like, we don't need to clean up our prayers and make them neat and tidy and pretty when we come pray to God. We can just come like this in the raw and just totally express how we are to God. Because he knows already, right? Like, by you hiding it from him, he's not like, man, I, I wonder what Nick's thinking. I have no clue. Man, if only he would tell me. I didn't know it was that bad, Job. I mean, I just thought it kind of affected you. Like, that's not what's happening here. And so we don't have to clean up our prayers. When you feel that blackness all around you, you can just cry out, God, where are you? Isn't that what the psalmist does regularly? Do you hear me when I cry? Are you there? Or, or when the psalmist says, wake up, God. It's not that God's sleeping, but it feels like he's sleeping. It feels like he's not around me. If he's anywhere, he's not in my zip code at all. And so, what do we do when we're in this kind of pain? We're going to see what not to do in the next, uh, in the next sermon. What we're going to do is we're not going to go all through 39 chapters of speeches. I know some of you wish we would. Uh, that'd be a long series. Uh, but next week, what we're going to do is just summarize all of the comforter's arguments. We're going to, we're going to summarize them. We're just going to say, this is worldly wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. It's of no counsel and no help. So today what I want to do is just, I want us to see three truths that strengthen us when we're just totally surrounded by darkness and blackness. Now these truths, they do not remove the pain. And I don't think that's necessarily why God gave us the Bible. 
He doesn't give it to us, say, read this, take a dose of this at night and in the morning and tomorrow you'll feel totally good. That's not really the point of God's word. It's not escaping pain, but rather it's about enduring. Think of a, a marathon runner and on, on mile 14, anyone run? Anyone run? You can raise your hand. I'm sorry. <laughs> Terrible thing. Like I remember running in high school and whew, I don't know why we did that. But if you've run from distance, especially if you've run for long distance, you know what it's like when that cramp comes in. And maybe the first time you ever got that cramp, you're like, oh, this means I'm done running. <laughs> Perfect. I wish it came sooner. Like, right? Like, like, that's what it means. It means stop. Something's hurting. But the marathon runner doesn't stop, does he? He knows something. He's trained for this. He knows what to do when he's struck by that pain that just wants to make him stop and bend over, but he, he doesn't. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to look at three truths that aren't going to make us escape pain, but they're going to help us to be strengthened so we will endure and keep running the race of faith. And so that's what we're going to do now. Three truths. Number one, experiencing dark nights is not only for unbelievers. There's an idea out there. You come to know Jesus and life is good. In fact, sometimes that's our gospel presentation, which there is great joy in knowing Christ, and ultimately it's absolute joy when we're in the new heavens and new earth. But in the reality of this earth, it's not always like that. But we're told three times in chapters one and two that Job is a godly man. We're told he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil. And in chapter one, verse eight, God, God says to Satan, there is none like him on all the earth. So we gotta remember, God is not treating Job like a scoundrel here. He's not like, oh man, I'm gonna pay him back for the things that he said. That's not what's happening at all. Job is a very godly man, maybe the godliest man who has ever lived apart from Christ, and certainly at this time. And so let us never look at someone in their pain, in their suffering, and simply say, well, they're getting what they deserve. If we don't know their circumstances, we don't know why the things that happened in their life. I mean, just think about it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Jews who are captured by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. They're taken over. They now live in Babylon. They're brought to be one of the wise men that surround them. But then one day, they refuse to bow down before a golden idol. And what happens? They're thrown into a fiery furnace. By obeying God, they got thrown into the fire, literally. The prophet Jeremiah, he's known as the weeping prophet. It's a good book. You should read Jeremiah. And Jeremiah actually sounds extremely similar to Job, which means Job's not the only guy who's ever sounded like this. Listen to what we read in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Jeremiah says, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. I wish that never happened, says Jeremiah. Isn't that Job right here? Same message of Job. And what's happening? Jeremiah was chosen by God to be his, his voice among the people. And are the people listening? Are they like, oh man, Jeremiah, I'm so glad you came? No, they hate him because he keeps bringing the truth. So they, they hate him. And they just want him to be quiet. They throw him in a pit. And so Jeremiah, the more he preaches the word, the more suffering he seems to experience. In fact, if we go to the New Testament and we look at Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what we read. Chapter 1, verse 8. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. You ever feel like just circumstances in your life are like a sentencing of death and you're like I, I guess God's about to take me I have no idea there's darkness all around me that, that's where that's where Job is at that's what Paul felt oftentimes our pain will cause us to, to question things question God question our salvation we say am I saved does Jesus love me have I truly been forgiven again let us 
Let us remember that great faith is not incompatible with deep suffering. We regularly have godly people throughout Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament, living godly lives, suffering for Jesus. In fact, I would say great, fight, great faith shines forth in deep suffering. So know this, the presence of pain in your life is never a sure indication of the absence of God's love for you. Do you know that? Like if anything, again, God's word teaches that we do suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul is coming back to some of the churches that he just planted and, and he's going to encourage them. He's going to encourage them to stand firm. And so he says in Acts 14, 22, we will enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Thanks, Paul. That's helpful. It is helpful, right? Because otherwise, if you don't know this, when suffering comes, what do you do? Where's God? Maybe God's not around. Maybe God's a man. Godly people are not supposed to suffer. Those are the lies we believe. Remember last week, we said Satan will use either pain or pleasure to draw you away from God. With Eve, it was pleasure. God's holding out on you. You eat the fruit, you'll be all that God is and probably more. So he offers pleasure. With Job, it's pain. God, we, we see the conversation in chapter one and chapter two between Satan and, and God. Satan basically says, look, he only worships you because you pay him with good things. He wouldn't worship you if he had pain in his life. Because if he had pain in his life, he'd know you're not a good God. You're just a monster. And so Satan will use pain or pleasure to draw you away, to distract you from who God is. This leads us to the next point. Experiencing dark nights is not outside the providence of God. We need to know this. We talked about this a lot last week. We're hitting it again this week. So many times I've heard people, and you, I know you've heard this before, where people say they're suffering because I, I must be outside of God's will. As if, if you're suffering, that would not be God's will for you. Or I've heard people say, whatever suffering you're going through is not God's will for you. They would liken God's plan to your life like a plane taking off from Seattle and going to Oklahoma. That's where when we jump on a plane to go visit my wife's parents, there's a great flight. Alaska Airlines, it's direct. No stops, no anything. We get in on, we, we get on out Seattle and we get off in Oklahoma City. It's a perfect flight. Yet, many would then say, well, God's plan for your life is like that plane, and yet there's hijackers on it. And at some point in the flight, they take over the plane, and they reroute the plane, and now it goes outside the United States to some foreign land with no extradition policy. Right? And we're like, well, I guess God's plans have been thwarted. I guess they've been hijacked. God didn't want you, but he wasn't going to stop things from happening. It just happened. But what we see throughout God's word, and especially here in the book of Job, Satan cannot hijack the plans of God. In fact, at the end of the book, Job 42.2, you should memorize this verse. This is one of those verses you need to know. Job will say, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isn't that good news? It's hard news in many ways, because that means the things that are in your life, God's not absent from, but God is actually using and ordaining and yet, it is good news knowing that Satan's not running rampant in your life. Chaos is not just free to do whatever it's like, or whatever it would like. But yet, in some mysterious way, God is sovereign over every circumstance that comes your way. And what's hard about that is that that brings up questions, right? Like, we want to say, well, what about this, or what about this? We have a lot of questions that then the Bible does not always answer in the way that we want, at least. But denying God's sovereignty over pain and over suffering does not somehow like, like make those questions go away. It doesn't answer those questions. In fact, I would say to deny his sovereignty just raises a whole lot more questions, much more problematic questions, like 
How can an infinitely all-powerful God be worthy of all worship and honor and yet not be sovereign over the darkest nights in your soul? That to me is a lot scarier than thinking God's just absent altogether or he had no way to stop or prevent whatever's coming into your life. Now last week, um, before that, what's interesting in the book of Job is that this one book wrestles so radically with the relationship between God, suffering, and evil. Like hardly any other book wrestles so much with these topics than the book of Job. And yet not once by Job or by any of the comforters is the sovereignty of God questioned. Do you realize that? Like just, just think through that for a moment. Not once in 42 chapters of the book that most intensely wrestles with suffering, pain, evil, and how God rules, or never once is God's sovereignty questioned. Not once does the comforter say, well, you know, Job, I mean, God wasn't around when this happened. Not once is that thought ever brought in to this book. Now, last week, we looked six ways from chapters one and two on, on how God is ultimately responsible be, behind all things that happened to Job. But today, I want to just come at it from a little bit different angle, and I want to look at, from another chapter in the Bible, how God's providence stretches over evil and suffering, over the darkest nights that we see. And so, Psalm 88 is probably the other darkest chapter in the entire Bible, and I would say it's second darkest. I think Job 3 might be a little darker. I do think so. But I I just want to read a few verses, like verses 3 through 7. I encourage you later tonight, read all of Psalm 88. But here, here we go. So this is, this is what the psalmist is feeling. He says, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that, are, that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Do you hear the agony in him? I'm just cut off. He then says, you, you God, have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Clearly, the psalmist is in absolute agony. He sees death drawing near like a boat, coming to shore, just getting closer and closer and closer. That's how he sees death. But according to verse 6, according to verse 6, who puts him in the pit? This is our interactive time. Again, we need an interactive slide like Adiel. we got to jump on that. So who puts him in the pit? God does. Who, whose wrath is against him, according to verse 7? Who's bombarding him with waves? Who's inspiring this guy to write? While we don't always understand why God does what he does or how suffering is ultimately for God's glory or our good. Like, those are just, that's a mystery, right? Maybe we wrestle with that, but that's at the reality of where we live. We always rest in absolute confidence that God's plans have not been thwarted. So when darkness comes and it settles upon your soul like just a deep, thick cloud, you reach your hand out and your hand just disappears and you can't see it because there's so much blackness all around you. What we learn in Job, what we learn throughout the whole Bible is that when darkness settles upon your soul, God has not abandoned you or forgotten you. Your restlessness is not the result of God resting and taking a nap. He didn't take a break of ruling the world at that moment. So know this, at every moment in your life, in the good and the bad, God is working for your good. This is precisely why. So Romans 8, the end of Romans ends with this whole argument. In fact, Romans 8, 35, this is, Paul is, is making this same argument right here. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, he's just walked through the entire gospel. He tells them how secure they are in Christ. 
And now he wants to say, what if, what if you now experience famine? What if you experience darkness of the soul? What if you experience tribulation? What if you experience distress or persecution or nakedness? Or, you, or somebody comes at you with the sword, like the Roman government at that time. Are you separated from the love of Christ then? Has God abandoned you? Paul's point is no. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news that we have in the gospel. And so I I encourage you, if you are here today and you have not yet believed in the gospel, maybe you haven't because you have questions. And one of your questions is, well, what about suffering? What about evil? What about God's sovereignty? Those are good questions. Those are questions that even as we believers, we wrestle with in this life and, and how it actually gets played out. But I urge you to believe in Christ today. Because denying God is not an answer to the evil and suffering in this world. In fact, if you deny God, you're actually denying evil and suffering. Just think that through. If there's no creator and we're created with a purpose, then we are all here by chaos and by accident. And accidents have no purpose before them or after them. Which means... We just simply exist, and it's only in a state of mind that there's anything called good or bad or evil that actually don't exist. So by you denying God, you're not actually answering anything. You're now just denying reality in and of itself. So I urge you to come to God with your questions, wrestling with them, And what you will find is that many of your questions are answered, and the ones that aren't answered, you can, as you just continue to seek and trust in God, that you begin to find answers that do satisfy your soul. And those answers, those questions that seem so big in the beginning are actually not as big as what you thought as you continue to walk in faith. But I urge you to come trust in Christ. He is the one who rules over all things, and he is the one who is putting an end to suffering, to evil. And he most decisively did that at the cross. And then one day he will come where he brings forth the new heavens and new earth and there will never again be pain or evil or suffering in this world. One more truth that we need. Experiencing dark nights is not foreign to God. Like, like sometimes what we would say is we read the book of Job or we see, okay, so Christians are going to suffer why would God let this? Are we like just pawns on a big, big old massive chessboard called Earth? And he just moves us wherever, we want, wherever he wants. And we have no say-so, no thoughts, and, and we're just experiencing things. And, and he's just sitting back in his divine lazy boy recliner just kind of watching what happens. I mean, we have thoughts like that, right? People wrestle with what is God doing? How would he let this take place? And that's where we have to come back to, and we're on this side of the cross, and we go, well, who does Job Job point us towards? And throughout the last couple weeks, we're just saying, Job clearly points us to Christ. I mean, if you know the gospel, it's not a hidden message at all. Job, a blameless man, suffers, and in the end, will experience glory. Jesus is truly the sinless man, not just blameless, but absolutely sinless, who suffers and is then glorified. His pattern of Job's life points to a much greater life of Jesus Christ. And what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus, in his perfect glory, experiencing perfect joy with the Father and with the Spirit, steps down from heaven, sets aside his glory, enters into humanity that he would be a person like you, like me, where he would live for 30 plus years and then at some point begin his ministry where he begins preaching about the kingdom of God. He heals the lame, he heals the blind, he casts out demons, he raises the dead, he feeds thousands of people with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. I mean, Jesus is incredible when we read who he is and all the things that he does. And yet, throughout the story of the gospel, we see the religious leaders hate Jesus because they feel threatened by Jesus. People are going to start going to him to worship, and then they're going to put us out of business. And who's going to come to the temple? And who's going to give all the money so we can enjoy all the things and all the power that we have? And so because they want power, 
and their own recognition, they then create a plan where eventually Jesus will be arrested, mocked, beaten, and crucified. But as we read through the Gospels, what we realize is this doesn't catch Jesus off guard at all. Remember, God rules over all suffering. And so throughout the gospel, like in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus turns to his disciples and he's like, so I'm going to go to Jerusalem where I will be crucified and three days later I will rise. And they go, I don't understand anything you just said, Jesus. Like, isn't that weird? Like, we understand it, but I'm pretty sure if we were there with the disciples, we'd just be right there. Oh, you know, I don't know what he just said. Because he just didn't give them full understanding until he rose from the grave. And then it's like light bulbs went on. They're like, now we get it. We remember how Jesus told us all this time. But throughout the Gospels, I think if you're like anyone else, like me, like we're scratching our head, like how do you guys not get this? He's using English, at least in our translations. <laughs> like he's speaking very plain to them. I am going to Jerusalem. I will die on a cross. Three days later, I will rise. And they're like, oh, man, can you say that again? Like, I just don't get it. But what we understand from the entire scripture, is this has always been the plan of God. The cross is not plan B, C, D, E, or Z. It's plan A all along. The plan of creation was that God would create a people who would come to him and worship him through the death and resurrected son, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes as the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice, so he would suffer in our place so we could have forgiveness of sins. In fact, we read about this in Isaiah 53. One of the great Old Testament passages that just really points towards the cross. Here's what we read. Just verses 5 and 6. It's talking about Jesus here. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Do you notice the exchange? He takes our pain. He takes our sin. He takes our punishment. He gives us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all. Go to verse 10, and it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who put Jesus to death ultimately? Was it the Roman soldiers? Yes. Was it the Jews? Yes. Was it Satan? Yes. Ultimately, God. Because his plans are never thwarted. His plans always take place precisely how they're supposed to act. That was the mission of Jesus. He came to bear the full, infinite wrath of God. And yet, remember, he is a man. And so what we have to do is we can't ever think of God like Superman. Clark Kent puts on the glasses, total disguise. You guys remember that? So Superman comes. He looks like one of us. He acts like one of us. But is he really one of us? Like, he doesn't get hurt by things. He doesn't feel pain the way we feel pain. That's not Jesus. Jesus is fully man. So he comes as a man, and, and we see the night before, or the night of, his, night of his arrest, we see the pain that he's in. So he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and in Mark chapter 14, verse 32, this is what we read. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then Luke chapter 22, verse 44, we read this. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Just is a man. He knows pain. He knows suffering. In fact, Jesus knows the very darkest of all nights of the soul. He has suffered more than any man has ever suffered because he bore the full wrath of God. What would take you an eternity, meaning never, to pay off God's wrath because you've sinned against him? Jesus did it on the cross. He fully absorbed that full, infinite wrath of God in the Son, Jesus Christ, so we could truly be forgiven and we could have everlasting life. Now, now think about why that is really, really 
good news for us. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, if you remember, we went through Hebrews not too long ago. We read this in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why is he able to sympathize with our weaknesses? Because he came as a man. But as one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Meaning he never ever gave in to sin. Verse 16, so then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and grace to help in time of need. Jesus entered into humanity, experienced the darkest night of the soul that anyone could ever experience so he would know your weakness. He would know when you're in that dark night, he would know When it comes to Job, what does he need? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fire, what do they need? When Jeremiah weeps and says, I wish I'd never been born, what does he need? When Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, man, we had a sentence of death on our life. What grace does he need right then? God knows perfectly. Like he's not wondering, like, like trying to get the prescription right. Like we'll just play around with this for a while. Hopefully this one works. If it doesn't, come back in a week. We'll try a new, new prescription drug. Like that's not how God's grace works. It's perfect every time to meet you where you're at because he went to the cross bearing the full infinite wrath of God. So he would know exactly what you feel, sympathize with you, in your weakness, and give you grace to endure. Isn't that good news? Like just think about how comforting that is. The gospel is not about removing pain in the immediate. It's not what it's about. It's not that we don't suffer or anything like that, but it's that we have a God who has suffered and conquered the grave so that now he gives us grace. So no matter what trial, pain, suffering we are in, we can rejoice in that. We can have peace in it. Not that it's easy. We see, we, we do wrestle. But we can, we can persevere and continue to run because God gives us grace. And whenever you doubt that, you go to the cross. Whenever you doubt, you go to the cross. And you just look at the cross. You go, Jesus went to the cross, not only for my sins, not just so I could be with him one day in heaven, but for right now, I would have grace. So whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever physical, emotional, spiritual hurt I have, there is the perfect, abundant grace being poured out on your life through Jesus Christ because he conquered the grave. That is the truth of the gospel. See, we don't have to try to wrestle with why is there pain? Why is there suffering? We clearly see it's a reality in God's word and what's good news is God gives grace. And when our, when our souls are engulfed in darkness, God is present with us. He is never, never abandoning us. In fact, Dane Ortland, he said this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Many of you read that. We're actually reading it right now in, in our staff. He says, our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into isolation. Have you done that? Let me just think through that. We don't usually do it if pain comes for a day, but when pain comes for a month, or six months, or three years, or ten years, we're tempted to start separating ourselves from the church, separating ourselves from God. That darkness is thick. And we think that the harder the circumstance, the further God is away. But what does the truth of this text tell us? Think about it. What does it tell us? Jesus became our high priest to sympathize with us in our weakness. So in our trials, in our temptations, he does what? Moves away or moves towards us. He moves towards us with grace. He moves towards us with grace. So we have a lie in our head that God's abandoned us, that everyone has abandoned us. I'm just on my own right now. Yet the truth of Scripture is, no, Jesus came, conquered the grave. So when you're in trials and temptations, he's pressing in all the more, pouring grace into your life. Listen, Jesus is not disgusted at your circumstances. He's not worried. If he comes in contact with you, you're going to make him unclean. You know, like when your kids are, are playing in the mud outside and they come running in with their hands, Mom! 
And you're like, whoa, 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 <laughs> bathroom. Like, you, you do that, right? Especially when you're wearing white pants. See, guys never do that. Same. But women do that all the time. We wear white pants, and kids come in with mud, so you point them to the bathroom because you don't want to get dirty. Just never says that. So next time, moms, I'll say moms especially, let your kids just come in and wipe it all on them. It's all on you and just totally ruin your pants. You say, you know what? That's what Jesus does. He doesn't run from you when you come dirty. He meets you. I don't know. You can choose if you want to do that. That might be weird. <laughs> but don't send a bill for new, new white pants to us. Like, that ain't happening. Jesus became our high priest. So moment by moment by moment by moment. He would give us the grace needed to stand firm in whatever dark night you're in. Every moment. Jesus does not need to sit with you in seven days of silence figuring out what to say, blown away at how terrible your circumstances are. No, no, he's with you right now, today, and he's giving you grace. Remember, trials do not mean you're outside the plans of God. On some mysterious way, right now, God is sovereignly working for your good. And so let's be armed with these truths. Let's be prepared to counsel others and ourselves with these truths because when we are engulfed by thick darkness, we must know God has never left us, but rather he is with us. So he's with you right now. And I pray you know that. And I would plead with you again, if you are here and you've not trusted in Christ, I urge you to confess and believe in him today. Believe that he is Lord and Savior, the only one who has truly come and conquered the grave. So he would give you grace in whatever trial, whatever you are experiencing, that he would forgive you of all your sins, that one day you would experience perfect life and joy with him in the new heavens and new earth. I'm going to pray, and then we will move towards communion. Father, Father, I thank you for this morning. Oh God, there is a while we can look at the darkest chapter in the Bible, we do so through the lens of the cross, and praise God for that. There is light. There is hope. Sometimes it looks faint, but it is always there because your son came, and he conquered, and he is our high priest, and he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses that he would know exactly the grace we need when we are in temptation, when we are in trials, when we suffer. No matter how dark the night that we go through, Lord, you went through the darkest of all nights that you would give us grace right now today in ours. And so, Lord, I pray that we know these truths, we believe these truths, and that they will be used by you and the power of your spirit that dwells in us to strengthen us so we would endure and run strong for you. That you would be glorified in our life whether we have good things or difficult things that come our way. And so, Lord, I pray that every single one of us, that we are comforted by your word today and that we go out today, we go out with souls strengthened. Not because we've imagined something, not because we're trying to create something, but because your word tells us. Your son came, conquered the grave, he is our high priest, and he sympathizes, with us, sympathizes with us in our weakness that we would have grace. May we never, ever, ever forget that truth. God, you are good you are holy, and we praise you for that. In your name, Jesus, amen.